Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, January 19th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. We look at the high trending numbers of COVID-19 cases in Ontario and the vaccine rollout, which has pitted the provinces against the federal government. Next, we tackle the controversial issue of open pit coal mining in the foothills in Rocky Mountains. We speak with David Luff, a retired civil servant and consultant who worked on the original policy protecting the region back in 1970. Then we catch up with the travel lady, Leslie Cater. Leslie explains how the reintroduction of the Boeing 737 MAX jet will look here in Canada, including an opportunity for travellers to change their flight plans free of charge if they don't want to fly in that aircraft. And finally, looking to beat the winter blues? Well, there's an app for that. We speak with the creator of You Are OK, a mental health app which features an avatar puppy as a wellness companion. 609 on the morning news, uh, trying to catch up with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. And I tell you, it's interesting because during the pandemic, a lot of strictly just COVID and, and, and the virus itself and how we're dealing with it. Absolutely something we're going to cover with Mercedes Stevenson. Oh, we've got her. We've got her on the line right Excellent. now. Yeah, from the COVID lockdowns to a pause on the vaccine rollout and serious questions about the future of the Keystone XL pipeline. Lots to cover this week with Mercedes. She is, of course, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. We appreciate it. And it's it's just such an interesting time. I was uh, setting you up by saying that it used to be just strictly COVID, and now we're yeah. moving into all sorts of uh, of uh, different topics because it's a, just it's such a busy time. So I want to obviously touch on COVID nineteen, and, and we've had some some positive news here in Alberta with a, a five point four percent rate of cases that seems to be going down. It was above six, but not the case in Ontario. A shock to hear that you know three thousand new cases in a twenty four hour period. What is going on, and what is going wrong in Ontario? Well, I think that that's a great question, and that's really a question, too, that a lot of people out here are, are frustrated by and are asking themselves and are looking around and wondering why it is if, you know, we, we are in a we are in a true lockdown here, mm-hmm. um, that this is happening, that people have been given stay-at-home orders. Uh, we've been told that we can't leave our homes except for for essential reasons. Um, there was sort of some contradiction in that original order about, you know, what is an essential reason, questions about whether or not the police could actually stop you and ask you where you were going. And then you're still seeing these numbers. So, you know, how much of this is that, uh, and we'd have to see, you know, the source of the infections, how much is happening in, for example, a long-term care home where it can spread very quickly to a large number of people. How much of this is community? spread? How much of this is uh, it happening in workplaces? How much of this is people who aren't listening to those regulations? And, you know, it's interesting to me, um, to an Andrew, because in the first round of a lockdown, everyone who I talked to was saying they were listening. That's not what I'm hearing from some people in this round of the lockdown. Yeah. They're feeling that uh, they've basically done everything that uh, they are frustrated or that they're only seeing a couple of people and they're being careful. Um, and that unfortunately can lead to the spread. So it, it's certainly a challenging time here in Ontario. No doubt. I mean, you know, COVID fatigue, I think we all have it, but you know, some areas are, are better able to uh, to follow the rules than others, I guess. How's your contract tracing in Ontario? Because ours here in Alberta has been virtually non-existent. 
it's been a real struggle for for a few reasons. Mm-hmm. Number one, you can imagine uh, how do you possibly contact yeah. trace three thousand new cases a day, um, and and they have to try because if we don't know where it's spreading, then we don't know what's going to be effective to stopping the spread. Um, and that's been a source of frustration for people, too, that, that we hear a lot is them saying, well, but where is it spreading? We don't know where it's spreading. So why are these rules in place? We don't know where it's coming from. Uh, and essentially, the government's just trying to send a signal to shut everything down as, as much as possible. Um, and, and that's really what that stay-at-home order was. It was a sign saying, take this seriously. But we don't have details on where a lot of it's happening. We don't have... Uh, that information. And when cases start to rise like that, it becomes harder and harder to contact trace. And the other thing, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, my throat's been out for the last few days, not COVID. I did get a test and <laughs> I sound good, terrible. Good, good. Uh, <laughs> strep throat, which is a reminder, even if you wear a mask, uh, wash your hands, you are still at risk mm-hmm. of things. Um, but uh, basically, I've talked to contact tracers who say, Suddenly, nobody knows where they've been or where they've gotten it. And they're suspicious that in that case, uh, maybe people aren't fully disclosing things to public health. Right. And if you're not disclosing things out of shame or, or concern that you're going to get into trouble, um, that also creates a problem for public health because they don't know why this is happening. Um, but that said, I mean, the numbers are just so astronomical here right now, and they're projected to get even higher um, that it's really difficult to contact trace it. Mercedes, uh, there's been a lot of finger pointing when it comes to vaccine distribution between the provinces and the federal government. Uh, you know, uh, they're responsible for it. No, we're responsible for, for our uh, province, but we, you know, we, we need to get the vaccines. The Fed's saying everybody's got enough, but now the ball seems like it's in the federal government's court. As here in Alberta, uh, we're apparently now out of vaccine. Um, so uh, I'm wondering what the federal government, uh, you know, has plans and, and what reaction you're hearing. Uh, I know that we talked about that slowdown from Pfizer, but uh, do you think the federal government's going to pull, you know, pull a rabbit out of the hat and get more vaccines for the provinces? I mean, they have before, but the issue then was not a case of the manufacturer saying we we sort of have limited numbers. Uh, And so the government, as you recall, said that, that that was the problem, and Pfizer themselves said that. But then you had the situation where we found out the Europeans were going to get back up to full capacity well in advance of us. And there's questions about why that is. I think behind the scenes, the federal government is likely working frantically. I mean, they want to get this vaccine out Number one, and, and, and I really believe that the, number, the most important reason to them is that they want to slow this virus down. They want to stop it. But number two, um, the reality politically is that this is their vulnerability. If they don't get vaccines right, that is something that, that it's hurting them politically. And we're seeing that Justin Trudeau, who has a very high rating, uh, approval rating in the Liberals throughout this, the vaccine issue is sort of the only thing that's been able to shake it because people want to get back to their real mm-hmm. lives. And so if they start to see, uh, you know, countries like Israel, the United States, the UK and Europe all vaccinating ahead of us, that is a potential vulnerability for them. So I'm sure that they are pushing to get these numbers back up. One of the issues here is we don't have transparency. Neither the company nor the government will disclose anything about the agreement to us, including how much we're paying per vaccine to get a sense of where we're ranking compared to others. So it makes it hard for us to know sometimes why it is other countries are getting stuff. And, uh, you know, people say, well, just dig on that. Well, we are, believe me, we are A-tipping this. We are doing everything to try to get that information. But at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of the information because neither the government nor the company will 
will disclose it. Uh, so we don't know what's in the Europeans' contracts. It's potentially different than ours. We do know that uh, the government has initially said that vaccine manufacturing countries would be getting the vaccine first. That didn't end up being the case because the UK is not a vaccine manufacturing country and neither are we, but we got it pretty early. So I'm sure that they are going to be determined to try to pull a rabbit out of the hat. Uh, the question will be how limited is the supply really and, and can they do that? Is there even room to negotiate that? Hey, I want to switch gears before we let you go with a hot political topic this morning. Certainly, you know, Derek Sloan and Aaron O'Toole. Uh, O'Toole trying to pump up his own, uh, you know, opinion polls, I suppose, across the country as the, the conservative leader. But Derek Sloan is trying to pull him back down. What's going on there? So Derek Sloan, during his leadership campaign, accepted money uh, from a well-known neo-Nazi. Now, apparently he donated this money uh, under another name. But that, you know, the Conservatives have sort of said this is absolutely unacceptable. Um, it was a well-known alias that he had. Uh, and last night, Aaron O'Toole put out a press note saying that he has started the process to try to have Derek Sloan removed from the Conservative caucus. Now, the Conservatives are a different party because the Liberals, for example, can simply kick someone out by the leader. Conservatives can't. It has to be voted on by caucus. But a lot of Conservatives uh, who have been unhappy with Derek Sloan for some time will see this as an opportunity to get rid of him. What they do to keep the social Conservatives on board who Derek Sloan represented is another question. Uh, but I would be surprised if caucus keeps him in because at this point, uh, especially after a story like that, um, it's just seen as, as untenable and that they don't want him in caucus. Uh, so that is what we are expecting to see from Derek Sloan. Of course, he also was uh, the MP who questioned Teresa Tam's loyalty, Dr. Mm-hmm. Teresa Tam's, uh, during the pandemic, noting that she, you know, was from Hong Kong. Busy time. Uh, grab yourself some hot tea, uh, Mercedes. You can take the rest <laughs> of the day you. off now. Thank you. Thank you. will come back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. Well, the province's decision to allow open pit coal mining in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains is now being heavily contested. The policy change reverses an act from 1976, which forbade mining in sensitive spots across Alberta, including the eastern slopes of the Rockies. David Luff is a retired civil servant and consultant who worked on the original policy and joins us now with details on the court challenge that begins today. Good morning, David. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. This has gotten a lot of attention, deservedly so. We know the UCP government blinked yesterday, announced a pause on future coal lease sales in the Rockies. The fight certainly isn't over. Can you tell us a little bit about the history uh, back in 1976 when this was put in place? Sure. The uh, coal policy was issued by Premier Lyde and his government in 1976. And that followed extensive public consultation by what was then called the Environment Conservation Authority. And that that public consultation with all Albertans provided an opportunity for Albertans to tell the government what they felt were the priorities for the eastern slopes and, and foothills. So the Conservation Authority met with Albertans from the north end of the eastern slopes all the way down to Waterton Park. Um, At the same time, the government was undertaking what was called the Foothills Resource Allocation Study, where internally within government, 
the government was looking at all of the lands in the eastern slopes and foothills on a quarter section basis to determine what the values of those lands were and what the priorities were. And so as a result of the public consultation hearings and that research, the Conservation Authority provided over 200 recommendations to the government about what should happen in the eastern slopes. And that resulted in the policy coming out and the premier and government being very clear that the highest priorities in the eastern slopes would be to protect watersheds, tourism, and recreation. In particular, watershed protection was uh, so critically important and is even more important today uh, because the foothills and eastern slopes are the headwaters of all the rivers that flow across Alberta, east uh, to the rest of the country. So I guess, David, if this was, you know, work done in the 70s, the, the general uh, next question will be, uh, how did this happen? Uh, how how could something like this be considered you know, good business or good for the province? Is this just about the dollars uh, for the contracts for these mines? You mean with uh, the rescinding of the policy yes, and taking, yes. taking it away? Yeah. Um, yes, I I truly think that, uh, I mean, we need to be cognizant of the fact that Alberta's economy has been difficult over the past several years. We're still navigating our way through difficult economic times and so on. I really think this was a knee-jerk reaction on the part of uh, the government of Alberta to rescind the policy. They had been lobbied quite hard by both the Coal Association of Canada and various Australian coal companies, all of which said, hey, we're going to create these, you know, all kinds of jobs and we're going to generate a whole bunch of revenues and that will offset the loss of from the oil and gas sector downturn. And quite frankly, that's not true. And rescinded quietly on a Friday afternoon before a long weekend by the UCP government, which a lot of people, obviously, it just seems terribly underhanded the way it was done. But even with yesterday's announcement that they'll cancel these 11 recently issued coal leases, David, there are still more leases available and working right now, are there not? Oh, there are. Um, the way the government rescinded the coal policy in a simple press release of information letter on the government, uh, what was on the Alberta Energy uh, website, the approach that the government took to rescind the policy was morally and ethically wrong. There was no consultation with Albertans. The only consultation that took place was with the Coal Association and the Australian coal companies. So what the the government did yesterday, Minister Savage, uh, the Minister of uh, Energy did, um, took back 11 leases that have been issued in December. So the, those leases were issued in December. They were taken back yesterday. My experience working in government... Helped when I left the government in 97, I was uh, Assistant Deputy Minister of Energy, responsible for the issuance of coal agreements, oil and gas agreements, and so on. Um, what the minister did yesterday was unprecedented in issuing agreements in December, taking them back in, in January. 
it demonstrates to me that the government realizes that rescinding the policy and the way they did it was a serious error in judgment and a mistake. And that uh, what they've done is another re-jerk reaction and that they they think that by canceling a few leases, which actually represent, you know, less than half of 1% of all the leases in the Category 2 lands that we're talking about, um, they think that, well, we just by canceling this, we'll trick Albertans into believing that the eastern slopes and foothills have now they're now protected again, which is completely untrue. Mm-hmm. The There's about 420,000 hectares, if I have my numbers correct, of coal leases in the Category 2 lands now. And uh, that existed before this sale took place. Those coal leases provide the ability for the, the holders to apply to the energy regulator and obtain coal exploration permits to to conduct coal exploration on those lands. And that's where the environmental concern is at this point in time, that there's extensive coal exploration happening up and down the eastern slopes in those category, former category two lands. So in my perspective, if the government was truly going to reach out to Albertans and take this pause, whatever this pause that the minister talks about is what that's going to be about. What the minister should do this morning before she has uh, her first cup of coffee is to direct the Alberta Energy Regulator to stop accepting and issuing approvals for any new coal exploration permits in those former Category 2 lands Mm -hmm. on those existing leases that you talked about. Mm -hmm. And secondly, and probably more importantly, is that she should also direct the Alberta Energy Regulator to inform the holders of the existing coal exploration permits that any activities associated with those existing permits will stop now and that there'll be no further exploration in the Category 2 lands until such time as this pause takes place. Mm -hmm. Albertans are truly consulted on what their priorities are and some of the big ticket items that are of concern like selenium pollution, water Mm -hmm. allocation, and so on, all of those issues are addressed so that as Albertans, we know what what's going on out there Great. yeah we could talk we could talk a lot longer on yeah. the topic but we're gonna to have to leave it there for now thank you so much for your time david you're welcome that is david luff a retired civil servant and consultant who worked on the open pit coal mining policy back in the 1970s well non-essential travel is obviously discouraged amid the pandemic some are still having to leave their homes for work or emergent situations and a new way to get around is coming to calgary the travel lady leslie cater joins us now with some details good morning leslie hi good morning sue are we talking about the max we are indeed it's been a long journey but on thursday there will be a flight into calgary from toronto on the max Do we want to fly on the max, I think, should be the next question. (laughs) 
Well, you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't. And whether they were personally affected by one of those dreadful crashes or whether they're just nervous flyers, there are some people there who say, I'm, there's no way I'm getting on that plane. And the airlines recognize that. So there's a lot of flexible policies in place. So you have to be careful when you're booking a flight now. Leslie, I'm wondering, you know, as, as a traveler, when I get the chance again in the future, um, yeah. I've never checked what type of an airplane, you know, I'm getting on. I, I, I look for the, the best deal, the best price, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the best time to, to get out of town and, and uh, you know, when I'm going to be landing at my destination. But do you think that a lot of travelers do know what type of an aircraft they're getting on, or is this going to be one of those things that now people are going to be paying attention to? Well, I think if you're one of those people who are nervous about this situation, you're going to be paying a lot of attention to the type of aircraft. And I noticed on the booking screen when you go through this, and it always gives you, you know, whether it's the Dreamliner or which kind of aircraft, with the Max, it's actually got a a link to another page on their website where you can go in and you can read all about their policies and what's been done and the exhaustive testing that's uh, happened on this aircraft. So they're giving a lot of information out there. But I think people have to be aware of the fact, a couple of things. First of all, this super flexible policy cannot last forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly it's disruptive and the airlines have lost enough money already. And um, the second thing is the MAX has been probably one of the most audited, checked over, talked about aircraft ever. So me personally, I would fly on the MAX. I like the aircraft. I like the design. I love the high ceilings um, and the quiet. You know, if if you're the kind of person who has to wear noise-canceling earphones, uh, you'll like the MAX because it's a very quiet aircraft. Well, you'd think after all this that it, it must hopefully be a safe airplane. I have a friend who's an air, uh, excuse me, a WestJet pilot, and uh-huh. she says this MAX plane is extremely safe, particularly yeah. now. So, you know, we'll see what happens. For now, you get some <laughs> options. How long will that last? But thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate your time, Leslie. Okay, thanks so much, Sue. Leslie Cater, The Travel Lady. You can find more online at thetravellady.ca. 8.49 on the morning news. An Edmonton-based digital wellness company has launched a new app, You Are Okay. The app aims to aid Canadians' mental health this winter with the help of a four-legged avatar friend. Laureen Wales is CEO of MyViva Inc. and joins us now with the details on this new app. Good morning to you, Laureen. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. Well, tell us, how did this idea come to be? Well, mental health is uh, is a huge topic these days, and uh, and it really should have always been a huge topic in my mind as a healthcare professional. So the, it's the one area that um, we seem to not focus on. We seem to think that we can achieve optimal um, health, uh, physical health, uh, without um, necessarily paying attention to our mental health. And and I think the one message that as a healthcare professional that I've been advocating my uh, twenty five your career is that our head is attached to our body. Um, our body does function as one, and you simply can't have optimal mental or physical health without taking into account both. So when we set out, we always knew with our MyViva Plan um, program that we had built that we always wanted to integrate an avatar to create a, a buddy um, to help you be accountable to taking care of you. 
But then the pandemic hit last year, and we realized, oh my gosh, Canadians are feeling, or not just Canadians, everybody in the world is is feeling really overwhelmed um, and uh, feeling completely that everything's completely out of their control. And so we we embarked on a journey um, with the University of Alberta Robotics Lab uh, to build an avatar that, um, and we call him Yaro, um, you are okay, as you said, uh, uh, to walk you through doing your daily reflections. And what it really is all about is to just get you to focus on the only thing that each and every one of us can control, and that is how we take care of ourselves. Is- Lorraine, I just wanted to ask you, is, is, is sometimes, you know, part of the problem with our, our, our mental health and, and it not being in, in great shape is that we feel like we've lost control or we don't have control over a situation like COVID, for example? Yes, 100%. And, and it's that, that feeling of that loss of control that increases our anxiety, makes us feel helpless, makes us feel hopeless. And, and when we really look at, at, uh, at what we do have control over, isn't it just what we can do mm-hmm. in a day? Mm-hmm. I mean, think, I, I don't have any control over you, neither do you over me, right? We can't control the weather as mm-hmm. much as we want to. Uh, so it's it's really it's it's really getting back to the basics and helping people understand that if you truly just focus on what you can control, it will help you um, start to build resilience in in focusing on on doing that daily self care. Lorraine, who do you hope uh, uses the app? Everybody, to be honest. I mean, Yaro, he, um, we we decided to um, use a dog because dogs are. Uh, used a lot in mental health therapy and so no no offense to any other animal or <laughs> uh, creature out there but um, we we want adults um, or even teenagers 16 and up can use it and just um, uh, talk to Yarrow get him he walks you through doing your um, self-care on a daily basis and you'd be amazed at how much of a difference it makes when you start um, thinking about how you're eating how you're sleeping how much you're sleeping, what you're drinking, uh, if you're exercising, um, uh, rating your stress and, and really looking at, at your energy levels, all of those things are all interconnected and really do have an impact on both mental and physical health. Laureen, out of hundreds of applications, yours uh, got a, a, through the Open Innovation Challenge, we should say your project was one that was awarded some great funding. So available in iOS and Google Play stores on the app stores. What do we look for? What do we search for when we go into those app stores? You search you, so Y-O-U dash A-R dash O-K. That is what you search. Perfect. And uh, yeah, I, I encourage everybody to um, to download Yarrow and, and get to know him. Going to do that right now. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Take care and have a great day. You too. Lorene Wales, CEO of MyViva Inc. And it is revivewellness.ca online if you want to have a look at the website.